TBCC episode 59, my realization of the day. 2021 may not have been my favorite year in horror of the past few years, but I will be damned if I'm not happy that it was the year of Car Baby, The Backwards Man, and Bradley Cooper living out his fantasy of sleeping with Rooney Mara, Tony Collette, and Kate Blanchett all in the same movie. It's the best of the year, guys. Let's go ahead and start the show. Yes, yes, y'all. It is time. It is one of my favorite times of the year. It is time to close out 2021 and talk about the year in horror. Welcome to the Blade Blunt Cinema Club. My name is Devon Taylor, aka underscore Daddy Disco on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, this is a podcast where we typically dive into the subgenres and franchises of the horror genre. And uh, that's usually in a you know, singular movie format or double feature or um, something of that nature. But um, this is a uh, different year. Um, this is a different episode than those. This is um, the best of the year. Um, every well, every, I say every year, but this is only the second time we've uh, gotten to do this. But um, this is um, we will do one episode where um, me and my guest that is waiting. Um, we will go through our top six films of the year, and then we will do another episode um, that will be the Bloody Awards, um, which is where we give out some of our personal awards um, out to some of these favorite films of the year. And uh, so I'm super excited. These are the last two episodes of the year. These are the last two episodes of um, the this iteration, the season of the podcast. Um, so I'm excited that it is, um, you know, we're wrapping things up. And uh, we typically don't get to talk new releases on the show, um, so I'm very excited to dig into uh, my favorite movies of the year. But of course, I got to bring in our guest. He is a um, past guest on the show. He joined us last December for our Black Christmas triple feature, which was a saucy episode. Um, <laughs> I do have to say, um, it was a it, it, it was a little saucy. We had a we had a pretty good time. Um, with um, uh, talking those three movies in the Christmas mirror right around this time. It would be about like almost exactly a year ago we did that episode, but um, we have done episodes of his podcast, The Daily Horror Habit, um, and I am super stoked to get to do this year-end wrap-up with Mr. Jay Krieger. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me yet again. Uh, whether it's on your po- podcast or mine, it is always a pleasure chatting horror with you. Yeah, um, we've gotten a podcast together a few times now, and that's why I definitely felt it was appropriate to have you come back on um, to do this year, and I know you have watched quite a few movies, uh, quite a few horror movies over the past year. And, just a um, few. Just, just a few, just a few. Um, yeah, so I'm really excited, and before we get into our top six rankings, um, I want to know, like, uh, Jay, how do you feel about 2021? Um in horror 
You know, for a year where I think like most, I spent a lot of time at home, not out and about um, until, you know, somewhat recently. But uh, I think the increase in video on demand options kind of really helped my sanity and my friend's collective sanity, you know, being able to watch a lot of new releases at home was Mm -hmm. a treat in a lot of ways and sort of a silver lining, Uh, whether it was sort of through like an HBO Max type deal where films were coming out simultaneously in theaters and at home, or just the increase in movies maybe that were uh, being pulled off of the shelves of studios that had been sitting on them for a while. I feel like this year, while some people maybe haven't enjoyed a lot of the horror that's come out this year. I feel that 2021 had such a large variety of horror coming Mm -hmm. from so many different corners of the genre that for me personally, this was a year that I really reveled in that variety because I got to scratch a lot of familiar horror itches with a lot of things that were released on video on demand. But at the same time, I also got to explore, maybe it was partially due to uh, boredom in addition to like the availability of things, but I got to experience a lot of different types of horror that maybe I don't necessarily go out of my way to seek out Uh, just because, you know, lying around many days, uh, trying to kind of just like satiate my appetite for horror and don't have a whole lot else going on uh, because of like pandemic and things like that. It was like, well, why don't I take a gamble on this? And I found that more often than not, the things that I was like approaching with, I'll take a gamble on it, ended up being really interesting and expanding my not only interests in horror, but mm-hmm. sort of exposing me maybe to corners of horror that I just wouldn't seek out normally unless, you know, I had this, uh, this abundance of free time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, I'd say that was more my year 2020. Um, at 2020, I watched more movies than I ever have. Um, and obviously because like that was the year that I mainly was like spending at home. Um, I pretty much, I worked all of 2021, Um, I was like back to work full time versus in 2020, I only worked like a few months and then like that was it. So that was my year that I really got to put in some work and like kind of stretch, um, stretch my, you know, genre prowess. And um, Mm. I I, I did, I still did pretty good this year. I mean, and even at the time of this recording, um, there's still like another 10 days left in the year. Um, And Mm -hmm. so, I mean, there's definitely going to be some, you know, that. I still watch and like, you know, once I like put like my official like end of the year list out on Twitter, it might end up be different than what we talk about here today. Um, But yeah, like, and the thing is like, yeah, um, we did get like, you know, there was so many movies this year because like you said, like um, whether it be movies that sat on the shelf that like debuted in like 2019 at festivals, but then their distribution uh, got messed up because of COVID stuff. Um, so yeah, there was, this did seem to be a year that we just got a a sheer volume of movies and, you know, movies of different genres, like all the major studios were putting stuff out, all the independent ones were, um, there was definitely a lot. And like, honestly, like it overwhelmed me to where I didn't watch quite as many horror movies, uh, quite as many 2021, uh, horror releases this year, um, as I did last year, just because I was like, like my list is so long. I don't even know where to start. And then, (laughs) and then next thing you know, I'm like watching something else. I, I spent a good amount of time this year. Um, my being pretty balanced between watching, um, 2021 horror releases, uh, new releases, um, uh, horror movies that weren't from 2021. I just hadn't seen or, um, and then also still rewatching quite a bit of movies. 
Um, but yeah, so I mean, I feel like, and as far as the quality goes, like this um, year uh, also, like maybe just because I didn't see nearly as many, I think out of like the 47 new releases I've seen this year, about 28 of them are horror movies, um, it, which is not nearly as many as I saw last year. Um, so mm-hmm. it might be due to that, but like, I just didn't have um, as many movies kind of knock me on my ass this year um, like I wanted to. Um, except one did sneak in right right at the very last second. Uh, uh, we'll get into it once we get to the list. Um, but yeah, so this year I, I was very happy with um, the amount that I did get to see. Um, and I, I feel like our list will be very different because like a lot of like the big names um, from the year um, I didn't see or aren't on my list. Um, I feel like a lot of the movies that I picked, I, I mean, for me, well, I'd say about half of them are ones that may not be on everybody's favorite ones. Um, but yeah, so I'm intrigued to see, um, how our lists stack up. So guys, we're doing our top six movies. Why six? Um, I think it's just a superior number to five. Um, <laughs> and I want to talk about an extra movie. I don't know. I think six is just a way better number. Um, so, so, so we're going to do our top six and the way it's going to work is Jay and I will go back and forth, uh, counting down from six down to one. If one of us, um, if we have the same movie on our list and like, say Jay has it at five and I have it at three, I will interrupt him. And the way that we will interrupt each other, um, in true bloody blunts fashion is you got to give me your best Willem Dafoe hark to to get me to shut up so that's the so that's the way we're gonna do it we're gonna we'll hark it up and then we'll talk uh that movie at the higher slot and we'll kind of talk about it together in that fashion so uh make sense jay that sounds good to me all right well you are the guest so go ahead and lead us off with our number six so my number six for this year was The Empty Man from David Pryor Mm. and this is actually a film that I guess kind of has to have a caveat in that it was released in October of 2020, but it was one of those movies that it was in theaters for like a week because it was at part of the height of the pandemic. And then most people didn't actually end up getting to see it because of that. And it was released digitally in February of 2021. But this is one of those movies that, you know, there have been plenty of articles about highlighting it being destined for cult status uh, and whatnot. And this is a film that I think tackles a lot of different elements of cosmic horror that I really enjoy. Um, it creates this really fantastic sense of not only a mystery, but the sense that throughout the film, it kind of takes on this dreamlike quality that I think is indicative of a lot of the best cosmic horror uh, that you kind of, every time you watch it, you begin to piece together sort of the mystery of it. But in the back of your mind, you're always asking yourself, do I really have a true grasp on what is actually happening. Um, This is a film also that, while I will definitely admit, runs a a little Mm -hmm. longer than it's able to necessarily, uh, or necessarily that its story dictates it needs to run for, clocking in, I think, almost like two and a half hours, which, again, like as much as I enjoy this movie, it's far too long of a runtime. But at the same time, I don't think that that shortchanges its ability to not only open with basically a 20 minute movie before jumping into the actual plot of the movie, uh, which I will detail at a a later point uh, in our second episode. But it's also a film that I think taps into a lot of genres or subgenres of horror that I love so much, primarily cosmic horror, 
but also there's definitely like a slasher element to it. It is part detective mystery novel. Um, and it does such a fantastic job, I think, of blending so many different subgenres together. And, you know, at the same time, it's weird as hell. It has some very evocative imagery in it that I'm definitely a fan of. Um, and at the same time, it's also another great performance, I think, from James Badge Dale, who I'm always a fan of. It's got a great Stephen Root cameo in it. Um, and it's a film that I definitely think about more than a majority of the movies that I've seen, you know, this year. And it's one that, you know, it has definitely seen an increase of a fan base in mm -hmm. it finally being on streaming and whatnot. Um, and it's a movie that, you know, I recommend to maybe my friends that are have a more of a hardcore sentiment towards horror than maybe it's kind of like a, it's a difficult casual horror uh, recommendation given how like weird mm -hmm. and, you know, long again, like I said, it is, but it's a film that I think revels in so many different subgenres that it's kind of this beautiful, weird, horrific horror cocktail that uh, I can't stop thinking about. Yeah, I um, have not gotten to see The Empty Man. I keep wanting to, and honestly, it's because of the runtime. I just like, it's hard to schedule that movie in yep. um, into the day, you know? And um, yeah, I just haven't gotten around to it. But like, I also still have no idea like what it's really about or like anything. But like, as much as I see people talk about it, which is really great, um, I think it says a lot about the movie. So um, definitely excited to check it out um, once I get a chance to. So. And that's one of my favorite qualities of some movies, right? Is mm -hmm. that from the outset, you can, I, like, I could describe, I could go on for another five minutes about, like, what it's about, but it wouldn't really do it justice because, again, like, it taps into that very strange dreamlike quality. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, a testament to the way in which it was adapted. I think that, you know, I haven't read a great deal of the source material it's adapted from. I believe it's a graphic novel, but I think that the film gives it a certain texture that, while is not necessarily, it's not just kind of like taking from the graphic novel and just delivering that, but on screen, it's more that it applies an additional texture to it that I think really, if anything, it kind of bolsters that source material in a way that only film can. And, you know, as somebody that reads comics and obviously enjoys film and amongst other mediums, um, that's always what I'm in favor of is that you take that text, but then you add something to it, not to mm -hmm. say it ever necessarily like supersedes the text but it just it does what film can do that obviously the visual medium of graphic novels cannot yeah um i mean i've seen it described as you know like a, a cult movie in the in the in waiting you know like one of these ones that like people just like kind of talk about for a little bit and it just like kind of takes on this uh you know gets its own lore of its own in a way and um i do love those kind of movies and speaking of adaptations, my number six movie is a video game adaptation, um, a, a, or really even an adaptation of a game that you like play at parties. Um, my number six movie is uh, Werewolves Within, directed Ooh. by Josh Rubin. Um, this movie is a horror comedy. It's uh, about a ranger moves into a small town and um, a series of killings start happening and it appears to be a werewolf. And then a storm is going on, so um, the few members of the town are all shacked up together and accusing each other of being the killer. And it's a mystery game, and um, it's based off of a VR game, um, like Werewolves Within itself. But um, the werewolf game is like also just like a, a party game, like it's like kind of similar mm. to Mafia. Um, like there's two werewolves and then there's villagers and then there's like a sage and like basically it's like the werewolves are trying to kill 
the other people and everybody else is trying to figure out who the werewolf is. And so to adapt that is so interesting. Um, like I, I, it's, and the, the fact that it works as well as it does was very surprising. Like I'd seen a lot of people talk about loving this movie and, um, I was like, you know, so like I kind of had a good amount of hype going into it, um, or not hype. I wasn't really super excited for it, but I mean, I love werewolf movies and, uh, this movie balances the comedy and the horror really well. I really love, um, small town horror where you, um, get this ensemble cast, you get to know, um, the people within this town, the relationships amongst each other. And that really fuels the movie. Like, um, you know, like not that this movie is comparable to Tremors, but in that aspect it is. Um, I really loved all the characters. Um, even if they are caricatures, I think they were all written to be very funny and, um, in a smart way. And the mystery worked like I really did not know who it was throughout the film. I, you know, I kept saying like, no, I think it's this person now. No, now I think it's this person. Um, and I think uh, the ending uh, pulls itself off. And uh, yeah, I really um, like this film. It was nice getting to see Sam Richardson be in the lead um, for a movie. He is very charming, very funny in this movie, um, as well as Milana um, Vontrub. They just have so much charisma between the two of them, and um, it was really fun to watch. It's a, it's just a, it's a fun movie. That's one that's definitely on my list of uh, egregious oversights in 2021 because I've heard nothing but good things about it. In addition, like I want to check out Josh Rubin's other movie, Scare Me, but that's just very, uh, very reassuring to hear that he was able to take this get party game concept that you know, on paper, you're like, okay, that sounds like it'd be entertaining for about 15 minutes. And the fact that he's able to stretch that out with a cast of characters that are very charming, but at the same and entertaining, but at the same time, also having a whodunit element that doesn't feel slept on, right? That's one of those elements that I'm always a, a little worried about in terms of like, well, are you going to be able to guess who the whodunit aspect in the first 30 minutes or so? And, you know, it sounds like uh, he definitely succeeded in making that a uh, not only entertaining film, but one that had an ending that was a little more difficult to guess. Yeah, like I, it just really worked really well. And we're going to go through this episode without spoilers and we'll kind of get into some spoiler stuff in the awards um, episode. But um, to not spoil or anything, it, this movie did a thing that I love with whodunits and mysteries um, where it's like, Ah, uh, you know what? I should have known. I should like by what how the movie presents itself. It's like you know what? I should have known, but I still didn't. And mm -hmm. when a movie makes me feel dumb, then that's a good <laughs> thing. Um, in like most cases, like I, I like to get stumped because I I kind of pride myself on figuring stuff out throughout movies. But uh, this one got me. I was like, damn. I was like, I should have saw that coming, but I didn't. Still, so uh, yeah, great movie. Uh, what do I'm you have? I said to check it out. Yeah. Uh, what do you have at number five? So my number five is David Bruckner's The Night House, um, which is another film that premiered in 2020. But then because of the pandemic, it was delayed until uh, this year, 2021. Um, and that's a film where this character, Beth, who's played by Rebecca Hall, um, is left alone in her lakeside house. Uh, after her husband unexpectedly unexpectedly dies, mm -hmm. um, and there is this sinister presence that uh, appears within the house. And this is in a movie that I think from the trailer, I was expecting it to be just this sort of very stock standard haunted house affair that 
was maybe very well shot and sort of just those set design of the house and tying into the architecture and everything was going to be the big selling point. But this was a movie that, you know, I talked about it with the guest on a, on my podcast and I was surprised how much this movie resonated with not only me, but my guests and just other people that I've talked to in terms of its portrayal of um, mental illness and some other taboo subject matter, like things like suicide and whatnot, Mm -hmm. uh, PTSD, grief, trauma, um, and its ability or David Bruckner's ability to tie that in with a haunting narrative that doesn't do the very real world subject matter a disservice, right? That's always one of those things where I'm always a little wary about a director's ability to tackle subject matter like that and not have it feel like they're just using it to exploit, like they're using real world issues to just basically tell a haunting story with a little bit of edge to it or something like that. This Mm -hmm. felt very much like a more respectful and grounded depiction of a lot of those things that are very real world issues, of course, uh, which is, you know, that's not much of a stretch to say, but it's just his handling of those and incorporating all those elements into what on paper sounds like a standard haunting film. And, you know, it's bolstered by what I think is a pretty phenomenal performance from uh, Rebecca Hall. And it's a film that, you know, in getting to talk with my guest about it, uh, we were surprised how much, you know, it, parts of it resonated with us, people that we know, you know, uh, life experiences in general. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on top of that, I think uh, it's got a creepiest hell finale that I kind of wish there were a little bit more, more elements of that. But overall, I thought it was a really masterful handling of, you know, uh, personal subject matter, but also just very difficult subject matter um, in a way that was respectful, but at the same time um, is able to have something to say about it and, you know, have some uh, creepy, entertaining, haunting moments that uh, I think definitely have stood with me or stuck with me rather throughout the year. Yeah, I um, I just hit the night house um, a couple nights ago. Um, I put in some work this past week. I, I've smashed a lot of movies down. Um, I did watch this one. Um, it didn't make my list, um, but um, I, I did feel like the story elements were a little spread thin because there were a lot of just really great ideas and it sucks that we like couldn't explore each one more. Like honestly, this movie could have been longer. Like I would have been fine Mm. if this movie was like an extra 20 minutes to like kind of flesh out some more of these um, ideas, especially towards the end. I feel like the finale felt a little bit rushed um, because you know, the movie just spends so much time with Rebecca Hall. It's a very personal movie and very intimate in that aspect that we just spend a lot of time with this one character for a good amount of the time and her just like kind of marinating in this trauma. Um, mm. uh, but yeah, I, I enjoyed the, the visual tricks. Um, it had some, uh, cool trippy sequences, good score to it. Um, I enjoyed it, but it, um, did not quite make the cut for me. Um, yeah, good film. Uh, definitely uh, check it out and watch it really like, and I watched this at like, like one in the morning and I felt like that was like the perfect aesthetic for it. <laughs> mm, definitely. Yeah. I watched it. Uh, I think I prep for my podcast. I watched it two or three times just so I could pick up on some other little tidbits that maybe I had missed. And, you know, I think that I definitely got a lot out of it in terms of like its portrayal of depression and grief and things like that. And, you know, I do wish that it had been longer. That's definitely a great uh, point that I definitely agree with and champion. And it's the type of thing though, where if they had added more of the haunting elements to it and whatnot, without getting into any real spoilers, I don't know that 
it wouldn't overshadow the elements that resonated with me so much. I I would be afraid, you know, I just watched uh, last night in Soho uh, recently. And that was a movie that I thought had some great ideas and it did a great job of like portraying this character in this time period and all these things. But then so many of the horror elements felt kind of just very generic as if they were padding, as if they said, listen, they got notes back for that. And we're like, listen, you need to have more ghosts and haunting moments. And it turns out they didn't have enough to really bolster that extended runtime that that film ended up getting. So mm-hmm. I kind of, I would be hesitant to say that I think that it needed a lot more of those types of moments or it needed to be much longer. But um, I think that the ending for me was so strong visually in terms of fully then leaning into the horror aspect that I don't know. I find that it having that big crescendo moment at the end is perfect because so much of the film works for me, whether or not there ends up being a haunting, right? That's one of my, sort of favorite elements of a lot of these films is that, and it's not so much whether like, is it real or not, but when the attention is paid to both halves of that spectrum, right? It's whether it, for me, a movie like the night house only really works when they walk that fine line, Mm -hmm. because if it leans into either one too much, it can just kind of undo the entire thing in a way where it's like, all of a sudden it's like, well, why even make this a horror movie? Why even mention that she has this sort of yeah. like real world, tr- you know, it's yeah. a very difficult balance that I think the film walks pretty well. And like I said, it's bolstered by a, a pretty phenomenal performance, in my opinion. Yeah, fair enough. I think I also had some unfair expectations on it just because I thought the ritual, um, his first film is just fantastic. Like the yeah, way that agreed. he balanced the two different, like it literally is like two movies smashed into one. Yeah. And he pulls it off so perfectly in that film. Um, mm-hmm. And that one just was a little bit more effective and also exploring grief, but from a different angle. Uh, so I like yeah. that this is kind of like can be like a little bit of a companion piece to the movie, um, especially in terms of some of the, um, you know, the the cerebral uh, trippiness of both of them um, that they both have. So um, makes me excited for Hellraiser. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, I definitely do think Hellraiser is in good hands. Uh, for sure. Um, so I'm pretty sure for my number five, we're going to have our first um, tie here, I believe. Uh, my number five is Silent Night. Hark! Hark, 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 hark it up. We will save Silent Night for um, for another slot. Um, so I will slide down to number four. My number four pick is um, The Voyeur's. If you have seen that one, um, this one, um, I just watched, um, I don't know, like a month ago and, um, I'm, I'm, I'm all for more modern erotic thrillers. The Voyeurs, um, directed by Michael Mahan, um, it follows this couple that they like move into this like new high rise apartment and the apartment building across from them have these really big windows and you can see inside them. And there's one apartment in particular with a very sexy couple um, that they kind of start um, looking in on, you know, and um, and it, it just like you kind of follow that and um, how it changes the dynamic of, uh, between the couple um, played by Justice Smith and Sid Sweeney. Um, and then, yeah, so just, it it all starts with, you know, them getting a pair of binoculars and getting involved in that way. And then, um, they just keep getting involved deeper and deeper and start doing some really dumb shit. 
Um, this movie is very, very horny. Lots of sex, lots <laughs> of shirtless people, lots of naked bodies. Um, it definitely delivers on the erotic part. It definitely delivers on the thriller part. And this was the movie that I messaged you that I was like, um, I'm. it's debatable if this is a horror movie, quote unquote. But I'm pretty sure erotic thrillers are like the um, the sexy cousin of mm. horror movies. It, I, I feel like it falls under the umbrella. I mean, and there are some dark things, um, not a whole lot in this movie. Like there's, yeah, it's light on the horror elements, but like I will say there's, you know, people die. You know, so like I, I still will throw it in the horror umbrella. Um, really good. Um, it just has, um, it's really funny. There's, um, really good banter between, um, our main protagonist, um, and then the, uh, other couple as well. Um, just fantastic performances all around. Um, everybody's really good, really funny, really hot. So that's, you know, really all you need for a rock thriller. And it, it takes you on a ride. Um, this would pair really well with, um, a simple favor from Mm. a few years ago. And um, it would pair super well with that because, like, this movie, once the twists and turns start coming and you're trying to guess what is really going down, and then it really just, like, it goes big in the ending. Like, it <laughs> it, 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 it just swings. And uh, for me, I think it hits a lot of people. I've seen it say this movie is a little bit too um, implausible or the characters are a little bit too stupid or ridiculous. And the movie is kind of stupid and ridiculous, but that's why I like it, because it, it just has this wild energy to it. Um, it really felt like an erotic thriller, like, from the 90s, like, it, mm. and I, I really want more of those, so um, definitely check it out. It is a Amazon Prime original, so it is on wow. there to check it out. Awesome. I'm adding that to my list. And, you know, erotic thrillers are basically like a horror-adjacent genre in my mind, and, uh, you know, I'm not one of those people that it's like, well... It's not explicitly horror, so you can't talk about it, but it's like horror has been such a uh, such a genre standard in many ways that it has had an effect on so many other genres that I think that anything that sort of borrows elements from it is definitely welcomed in these types of conversations. And, you know, what more can you want than like dumb, hot people that find themselves in fucked up situations for for a good time? It is. It's definitely my kink for sure. Um, hot people <laughs> being making dumb decisions. Like you, you spelled it out pretty uh, clearly for me. Um, it hit me with your uh, number four. So my number four is uh, Rose Glasses Saint Maud, uh, which is a film that juggles uh, faith and you know um, mental illness and whatnot. And it's very much about a uh, a young nurse who, after this very traumatic experience turns to religion and that makes it sort of her focus in life. And she's this live-in nurse and she finds that she is now the, uh, she has a patient rather who very much goes against her religious views and whatnot. And we kind of see how that informs the way that she feels that she needs to carry out her faith and whatnot and how that conflicts with her. And, you know, I think the film does a great job of kind of like what I had said with the Nighthouse in that it walks this very fine line of dabbling in different, again, subgenres of horror that I love so much, or maybe elements of horror that I love, where it talks about things like uh, question uh, reliability of a narrator. It dabbles in topics like faith. It dabbles in topics like mental illness. Um, and I think that it does a Rose Glass does just a great job of really making me guess. It's kind of akin to 
your experience of werewolves within in the sense that I really was guessing um, for a large portion of the film, whether or not this was going to end up um, being a case of, are these really otherworldly horrors that are influencing what's happening? Is this some kind of divine intervention or is this just a sick person that needs help? And she finds herself in these pretty precarious situations that, you know, it's the type of thing where this is really the film that is not only driven by a strong director that understands that you can't give away too much too early on, but also the protagonist mod who's played by uh, Morphoid Clark. I hope I pronounced her first name right. Uh, I shudder to think if I didn't, but she does such a great job of carrying this. And, you know, it. her performance really is not so much just about her sort of like outbursts and whatnot, which occur in the later half of the film. when, of course, it, things begin to ratchet up more and more, but it's more about the little moments that really stick with me and sort of her ability to make some of the most innocuous seeming moments, the most memorable because of how she's able to just show how at odds she is with everybody almost that she encounters that's around her. Um, and that's something that makes my skin crawl in a way that uh, I would think that it makes some other people just like lots of these awkward moments that socially awkward moments and whatnot. But I find that it fuels much of the film in a way that had it not had such a strong lead or such a strong director that these would have been a bunch of kind of like shoulder shrugs. Whereas for me, uh, it created a lot of tension in the little moments, which I always love to see because mm -hmm. sometimes the little moments are the ones that get overlooked. And this is a film that capitalizes those in a way that builds and builds and builds. And then this film delivered uh, a finale that I think is pretty phenomenal uh, and one of my favorites of the year, but yeah, St. Saint, uh, Saint Maud is a film that has definitely stuck with me. And it's one that I've thought about frequently throughout the year. Yeah, St. Maud. Um, I really dug St. Maud and I kind of grew on me a little bit more after watching it. Um, St. Maud's a movie yeah. that it is um, technically so good, like the way it's shot, the score, um, mm. the, the, there's so many, like it has a couple of my favorite sequences um, of the year, which I will get into in next episode. I do have a shout out for St. Maud there. Um, and this is actually... And this is actually perfect because um, I was going to, after we did our first three, was going to have us do our honorable mentions. Um, so St. Maud was going to be one of my honorable mentions. St. Maud actually got bumped. St. Maud was on the list until today, <laughs> until literally today. Um, we'll get into that here in a minute. But St. Maud was almost on my list. Um, I, I felt real bad taking, taking it off the list because um, it was definitely like one of those movies that just kind of lingered with me throughout the year and uh, seeing certain things about it. Um, the second half wasn't what I wanted it to be, but that's not my problem. The, the Not that the second half of the film isn't good, because it really is. It's good. It has a good finale. Um, it's just not exactly what I wanted from it, but that's not the fault of the movie. So, uh, yeah. But um, so um, I'll go ahead and do my other quick honorable mention shout-outs while we're at it. Um, Shout-out to Psycho Gorman. Uh, PG Psycho Gorman, um, a movie that was just so fun and made me extremely happy. Loved all the practical effects. If you love Power Rangers um, and you want it to, you've always wanted it to be more horror, then you get Psycho Gorman. Um, really funny, um, really bloody, um, and yeah, it's just a good ass time. Um, uh, uh, there's someone inside your house. 
Um, I thought this movie was really fun. Um, it kind of felt like a throwback to like early 2000s. We have this group of teenagers and I actually bought them um, as a group of friends. Like I liked hanging out with this group throughout the movie. Mm. Um, this was uh, from Patrick Bryce who did the Creep movies. Uh, love his work. And uh, I thought this was really fun. It's a little slick slasher, um, a whodunit. Um, a lot of people don't like the ending, but I mean, I feel like it for what the movie kept talking about, it made sense. Um, but it has some really great kills. They're bloody. Um, the killer is uh, theatrical. They have a, a thing to them that they do um, that um, I really appreciated. And yeah, I thought it was a fun movie. And then um, um, Last Night in Soho, also um, another one. I love Edgar Wright. Wish it made this list, but the, um, some of the story decisions... Um, it got a little too complicated and muddled mm. and uh, made me kind of question the intent of the movie. Um, it loved the style, but it wasn't as stylish as I was hoping it would be. Um, but great performance uh, by Thomas and McKenzie. She's a fucking rock star. Mm. And then my last honorable mention was a movie I was debating putting on the list, but it was a genre thing because this is my number one movie of the year, like period. Um, but I ultimately decided it didn't belong on the horror list per se, um, but it's Shiva Baby. Shiva Baby mm. is a, it's a drama, um, it, but it's like, it's, it's one of those anxiety inducing dramas. Like it's in the uncut gems, um, good time, like type of um, movie. And and so that's kind of what my comparison was. I was like, well, what I call those horror movies and like, yeah, in the way <laughs> that like it like just makes you so anxious and like, you know, um, especially this movie that is a more relatable situation of someone literally just being at a funeral with their family and they come from a Jewish family and she has all these, um, you know, she everybody has all these expectations of her and asking her all these things and she, you know feels like she's not um, doing, you know, making her family proud. And then while all that's going on, she's dealing with a her sugar daddy who's there who she finds out has a wife and then her past lover as well. And the movie is shot like a horror movie. Like the score mm. is a straight up horror score and the way that they use close-ups and um, it, they do some like, you know, kind of psychological like dreamy type things. Only like one time, but like it has elements of that. Like I call this like social cringe horror, which Ooh. I wouldn't consider, but it's not exactly horror. So right. I ultimately let it left it off the list um, because, yeah, but it is my favorite movie of the year. So just check out Shiva Baby. Um, That's what are, definitely on my list. Yeah. What are just, uh, some of your honorable mentions? Well, that's a fantastic segue into a movie that uh, I literally watched last night that I would put into this uh, category of social cringe horror, that being uh, Stephen Karam's The Humans, which mm. is about a family that gets together for Thanksgiving dinner. And it is very much in line with much of what you just said in terms of it's more about the tension between people just having a conversation and the stakes are more about their relationship and sort of their understanding of that relationship and how it's ever fluctuating. But the entire thing is filmed very much like a horror movie, uh, which I love. I mean, I think that's a fantastic mm -hmm. uh, genre description or genre uh, title that you've attributed to films such as this, in that 
it really does carry that intensity to the degree that you're like, well, the only thing that's missing from this that would outright make this horror is a monster of some sort. And Mm -hmm. in many ways, like the, uh, the social anxiety and social stress of interacting with these people, you know, with films such as uh, these two that we're talking about, it's never that it's uncomfortable because of these just like random people. It's always preying upon the relationship and the baggage or the stigma that's coming with that relationship. And they're knowing these people and seeing how those relationships have been intertangled and interwoven with one another in uh, more often than not awkward ways. Um, But I think that that is definitely a film that uh, has left a mark on me. And I would say that it's, it sounds like if I uh, enjoyed that, I would definitely enjoy Shiva baby, which is on my list. Um, Another film that was an honorable mention for me was coming home in the dark, which is, currently on Netflix. That's one of those movies that, you know, I, I call it uh, all gas, no breaks cinema, where mm. it really goes for it. And right out the gate, it lets you know the type of movie that it is. And it does not stop for a second. It's a, a tight, just around 90 minutes. Um, it really does not pull any punches in a way that doesn't feel done for the sake of trying to be edgy or different. It really does just feel like, hey, this is this fucked up story and we're going to let you know straight up from the opening moments it's fucked up and they, they really don't leave that sort of realm of horror in a way that i just love and you know all the performances i think are pretty strong um and it's just it's a commitment to the bit in the best way possible and i think that that's definitely one of the standouts of me for the year um another one that i just watched recently was we need to do something uh which is a film that ah, i just watched that the other night too oh fantastic Well, that's one of those movies that I think really capitalizes again on elements of social cringe horror, but takes it much farther in the more traditional realm of horror, Uh, claustrophobic, single setting. Mm -hmm. Um, I just love that sort of like isolation nature. And I love seeing it applied to the family dynamic. And, you know, (laughs) it's funny, my letterbox review, I think is just like, I'm so thankful my family likes one another because it's the type of film that. I could never see, like, it's one of those situations that if you remove the horror elements, I could never see myself being in, but I think it does such a good job in such a short period of time of establishing these characters, establishing just enough of their background that you fully understand the relationship. You don't have to have a great deal of exposition about each and every event that happened because they're able to, um, you're able to infer a majority of it through both the performances and some of the subtleties in the storytelling. I will say also like the more overt moments of horror, I think it's a very small scale, very small budget. And I think it capitalizes on horror in the perfect way that it never goes with outside its means Mm -hmm. um, in a way that I found to be very uh, economical. And it was everlasting in a way that uh, one scare in particular that I think has definitely stuck with me throughout the year. Um, And my final one is going to be the trip, which is, not necessarily a horror film. It's very much in the uh, in the vein of like uh, home invasion horror in a way that I think kind of ties in a little bit to like you had been saying about the voyeurs and that it draws a lot of elements from horror and that it is very over the top in the violence that occurs in the film to almost like a gag quality. Um, it's very reminiscent of, like I said, home invasion horror. I will say a huge caveat, and this is also one of those movies that was uh, produced by Netflix, so it's on there. Um, There's about 10 minutes of the film that I think is probably 10 minutes of the most, I would say, needless. It kind of sticks on this one 
I assume the director assumes that it is a joke, but it is one bit of the film that I think is really just pretty awful. Uh, I will say though, it's 10 minutes out of an hour and 40 minute movie. Uh, I still really, really enjoyed the movie despite that kind of like very off color element that the director seems reluctant to move on from, which he would have been probably better served to. But I think that if you like your dark comedies, over the top, violent, and uh, just a fantastic performance and dynamic between the two leads, Numi uh, rapaces one of the leads and she's fantastic in that. And, you know, the trip is one of those movies that, uh, with a major caveat before I show it to anybody, it's one of those movies that I think uh, my friends that maybe aren't the biggest fans of horror would probably enjoy just because it taps into those moments, but then it undercuts any overt horror moments with uh, some pretty effective dark comedy. Those 10 or so minutes withstanding, like I said. Nice. I don't, uh, the only ones I did see, um, we need to do something. We will talk about that scare in the next episode. <laughs> Spoiler Fantastic. for one of my awards, but we will talk about that. Um, <laughs> and also with the humans, um, I got halfway through and then I fell asleep and then I did not have time to finish it, but I was sure it probably wasn't going to end up on this list. But um, I like the way that it's using like the location and like, um, you know, it's like based off of a off of a uh, play. And yep. we need to do something kind of felt that way. It felt like it could be a play. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So um, to dive back into the list, um, I will go with my number three, um, which uh, is the perfect spot for this movie because at the last second, at the buzzer, Papa Guillermo del Toro hits a three-pointer <laughs> for the Let's win. Let's go. Um, uh, didn't uh, come in at number one. That would have been amazing if I, this just like blew me, blew me away. But I did um really enjoy Nightmare Alley, um that I literally just watched before the recording today. And uh, this is a just you know it's a long audacious fable. Um, and it's you know the the trailer does a good job of like kind of um showing the tone like I was kind of going in and I thought it was going to be a little bit more I thought it was going to be like supernatural um and mm. without spoiling the movie um it's eh, up to your decision there I guess um but man this movie um the uh, the look of it the way he captures uh this time period is fantastic um I did miss the first like 5 minutes because I was a being a stoner and had to go to the dispensary before the movie. <laughs> and then this guy in front of me was taking so long to get his ticket. Um, but I still blame myself. Um, but I did miss the first five minutes or so, but even still like this movie, um, it's a, like people obviously had talked about the runtime for it. It's needed with these kind of movies. This is like, you really go on a journey with, um, this character played by Bradley Cooper, as he goes from, you know, low working con man into this like super famed uh, mentalist. And um, this movie really feels like a, um, a companion piece with the prestige. I just now Ooh. I want to rewatch the prestige after watching this movie. Um, it just watching this character uh, just kind of, you know, you are sucked in by his charm and his wit and everything. But then as you watch uh, his darker sides come out and him kind of spiral um, with this quote unquote power, um, uh, 
it just the way that it unfolds, it takes you on this emotional journey. Like, you know, at first you're on a side, then you hate them. And then you just like, you really can't believe it. And then like when it really kicks into the horror elements, it's like, Oh fuck. Like, okay. And, um, we will talk about a moment of it, um, in next episode. Um, but, uh, the ending of this movie is just a, just sock in the face. Like it is just, I mean, I was, I was coming through the movie and I mean, I was enjoying it, uh, but there was something in me that was like, all right, is it going to stick the landing because it really needs to do something specific here. And if it doesn't do it, you know, does it kind of tank the movie? And mm. why did I doubt GDT? He fucking <laughs> just popped me right in, with a haymaker. Um, yeah, Nightmare Alley, the score, the, the cinematography, uh, most of the performances, just, um, it's Guillermo del Toro just doing his thing, making a really dark and cold fable. And, um, I enjoyed it. I highly recommend, I am really glad that I could squeeze it in, uh, before recording today. Yeah. You know, he's one of those guys that he does such a fantastic, and it's probably one of the elements of his craft that gets a little bit overlooked, he does such a fantastic job of establishing a time period and being so true to that time period mm-hmm. that even if maybe this film doesn't get as supernatural as maybe I envisioned it would based on the trailer or whatnot. It's the type of thing though, that I know that he is going to capture that period and he's going to do that period and those characters and the people within it, the justice that it deserves, that it justifies him setting it within that period, whether or not maybe it delves into as of supernatural, uh, corners of horror as he has done in the past i at this point i'm just happy to hear that he's able to really just establish this very unique tone and period um which it's a film that for whatever reason i thought that it had a uh simultaneous streaming and release deal so i'm definitely going to try to seek this out in the theater over the holiday yeah definitely go see it at a theater also because it fucking needs it i mean this movie was expensive Glad yeah. that Del Toro did get to make an expensive movie like he likes to do. Mm-hmm. But um, the studio's kind of doing them dirty, uh, putting them yeah. up against Spider-Man. And mm. it's getting crushed at the box office. So everybody, please go see Nightmare <laughs> Alley in theaters. So uh, that way Papa can keep doing his thing. Um, we need uh, GDT to keep doing his thing. So Absolutely. what's uh, your number three? So my number three is Malignant. Hark, 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 hark. <laughs> I knew that was going to be your first hark. Actually, it doesn't matter because it's my number two. So uh, go ahead and uh, give me your, uh, your malignant thoughts. All right. So Malignant is a, a film that you and I talked at at length uh, on my podcast. Yes, and it it's a movie, again, like I put a huge uh, emphasis on the fact that this is for me like the horror party movie of the year, if you can, uh, yep. if I can make up my own subgenre for a film, because I have a lot of buddies that are not necessarily the biggest horror fans. And yet this is the movie that I've probably watched the most this year in showing it to people. And everybody that I've shown it to has enjoyed it because it takes these massive swings. James Wan knows that he is dabbling in so many different pockets of horror and it comes together in this beautiful cocktail of just sort of familiar uh, subgenres of horror and whatnot. It begins sort of as this weird whodunit, uh, has a lot of sort of like giallo uh, elements to it, but then it goes in a direction that I don't think we've ever seen before in terms of just 
how out of pocket he gets with the big sort of like monster moments and the reveal or the killer moments. Um, and it is very indicative of a filmmaker that maybe stepped away from the director's chair for a brief moment from the horror realm, except his time away in the more action oriented genres mm. has paid off in massive dividends with malignant because we get some of the best horror action hybrid scenes, I think of the year with this film. Mm-hmm. Um, it delivers in some pretty big ways. You know, you and I talked about it being a great, uh, a lot of like service to it being very campy, but in a way that feels very self-aware. Like I think that some people maybe that have not been as keen on this film uh, or as positive on this film, it was mostly due to them being like, well, this is stupid or this is dumb. Whereas people that maybe are a little more versed in the genre were able to say like, no, this is very clear, like homage to Mm -hmm. some of the campier elements and leaning into that camp in a way that is so over the top that, you know, not to uh, begrudge anybody, but like when you watch enough horror films from such a wide swath of the genre, you can pretty easily see when somebody is like hamming it up for the sake of hamming it up and doing it on purpose. Or if they're taking these kind of like, Oh, we could be campy here, but then it doesn't necessarily have the payoff. Whereas malignant, I feel it definitely has the payoff more often than it doesn't. Um, This was a film again, that I think it takes even for somebody as well established as James Wan, who doesn't have a ton of L's under their belt. uh, In my mind, he's somebody though, that really understands the genre, both horror and action. And this is able to make this just this wonderfully weird and fucked up movie that's provided multiple uh, of my favorite moments of the entire year in the realm of horror. Oh, yeah. I mean, James Wan, in my eyes, has taken no L's. Uh, James Wan is Larry Bird at this point, um, (laughs) just in the corner, yakking them up. Um, I mean... Yes, please go listen to uh, the episode that me and Jay did on Malignant of his podcast, uh, where we really get to dive deep into it. But I mean, yeah, like I've been singing the praises of this movie all year. Uh, One of my biggest tweets of the year was a Malignant uh, tweet from like one of my uh, reviews of it. So a big win there, but Malignant, it's, it's, I mean, it was just so fun. Like you said, it is the party horror movie of the year. Like you want to show this to friends, uh, go along for the ride. It has so much rewatchability to it um, because it's just fun. Um, It's, um, you know, James Wan knew what he was doing. He took the bag and he ran with it. He said, I am doing the, what the fuck I want and you can't stop me. And um, mm. I love that we got just one of the most surprising movies of the year. Uh, the horror, the action in it is just like fantastic. Like, you know, feels like, you know, like it gets a lot of John Wick comparisons. But I mean, have you seen our boy Gabriel move? <laughs> like, oh, man. And that's that's why this movie is that number two for me, because like, I mean, Nightmare Alley is probably a better movie than Malignant, but Malignant is, I mean, we got the rewatchability factor, but then like, I mean, we got the birth of, I think, a new horror icon. Like yeah. the the love for Gabriel is so real on Twitter and on Letterboxd and stuff. The, the, the Gabriel costumes I saw on Halloween on Instagram, just chef's kiss because like we love our backwards boy. Um, <laughs> this movie... Like Gabriel, like, I mean, just his look and the the whole twist to it. I'll still try not to, you know, say it, but whatever. 
if you haven't seen Malignant at this point, I don't know what you're doing. But um, it just like I really feel like, especially now we are getting a sequel. We weren't sure about it at the time we recorded your podcast. Um, but now we do know that they are talking about a sequel. I'm sure it'll be a trilogy. Um, and I feel like we just have a new, like, this is like, I feel like, you know, in 10 years, like you, you say Gabriel and people are going to like know exactly what you're talking about. Um, because it has that kind of iconography to it. Um, Malignant is just, it's so fun. Has some of my favorite scenes of the year. Um, in the, the tone, um, the camp of it all. I'm, I'm excited. Um, I'm excited for whatever the sequel holds. Um, I say they lean more into the action and go like, uh, they're like kind of like a vigilante, like, mm. like, um, she has to like make a deal with Gabriel on like how they like to like work together. Like, I'll let you out a little bit if we do this. And then like, mm. I don't know, something like that, um, I think would be like really fun. Like pretty much make it venom, um, but, <laughs> but malignant. Um, I think that would be a good, good time. So yeah, malignant's my number two of the year. Um, what is your number two of the year? My number two is Jordan Graham's Seder, uh, which mm. is very much a folk horror film that I forget the exact amount of time, but this took, I think almost a decade, I think for him to make or something akin to that, where just, you know, it was a solo effort in terms of filming, uh, writing, directing and whatnot. And then the editing process was uh, quite the ordeal. And you know, that aside, it kind of just shows for me, at least, that he had the dedication to the type of story he wanted to tell that on the outset might seem familiar. But this is a film that very much is about family lineage and family history as much as it is about the more folk horror supernatural elements. It's, you know, you start with this very um, reduced aspect ratio of like video camera that's black and white. And you're kind of moving through this house that's lit by candles and there's just sort of this old woman sitting in bed and then it keeps moving around the house and you just kind of get the sense from the outside that there's a presence there. Mm. And then the film starts to follow this character that is living out in the woods by himself. He barely speaks. He's very isolated. It's him, his dog and a rifle. And he's just kind of like out wandering in the woods. And, you know, it is very akin to a lot of, you know, I think people would probably say something like Blair Witch Project, but I think that, as successful as Graham is in the more supernatural elements and sort of just capturing the isolation of what it's like to be in the woods, like as somebody that has spent a great deal of time, uh, like down South and like Tennessee in the woods for a majority of my life, uh, visiting family that have like a house out in the middle of nowhere. Um, he does such a fantastic job, I think of capturing just the isolating nature of being 20 minutes from other people, 30 minutes, other people. It could in this film, he could be three hours away and you wouldn't know, right? He captures the isolation so well, but at the same time, he does a really great job of tying in like family trauma that doesn't get unpackaged in the most of healthy ways. So it lingers, right. Or sort of unresolved trauma and how that can really dictate somebody's entire life. How one event that could happen in a microsecond could dictate how they're going to live the next 10, 20, 30 years of their life. Um, he does a really great job, I think, of just capturing that mood, that atmosphere, that unknowing nature, that he's able to evoke certain emotions without necessarily spelling things out in a way that doesn't feel overly pretentious to me. 
Um, that's one thing that, again, this is one of those movies that I probably wouldn't recommend to anybody that is a more casual horror fan. I don't ever say that as like a point of, uh, of, I don't know, for lack of a better phrase, I guess, superiority or something like yeah. that, but, or condescending. It's just, it's a film that it takes its time in telling a very specific type of story that is not bolstered by a lot of, you know, jump scares or maybe conventions that people are more used to and uh, more mainstream horror and things like that. But the film focuses so heavily on the individual in ways that feel very personal that when it does build up to those more overt supernatural moments, I find that they pop in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. If it had had a lot of the more traditional buildup, you would be like, well, of course, this is where it's heading. And when this film hits with its more horror moments, they hit in a way that linger for me. Um, and I think that it does a really great job, again, of tying into the individual rather than overly explaining their backstory or just beating you over the head with exposition. You're more informed by their behavior, by characters' behavior, um, which I always think is more effective. Um, and it makes for some really terrifying moments in the later half. And the movie does a really great job also of tying in that sort of like dreamlike quality. And it ties into like the reliability of narrators, which is an element of horror that I am, uh, I'm very taken with. Um, and I think that this is a movie that I'm very glad that it took as long as it did to come out, because I think it shows in Jordan Graham's attention to making a film that feels personable, but then at the same time, it ties into those uh, horror elements that we love so much. Um, I had not even really heard too much about this film, but I am intrigued. I look, looked it up and uh, this guy, Jordan Graham, uh, did everything. He uh, mm -hmm. directed it, wrote it, edited it, did the music and did the cinematography. He did literally everything. So this is yep. like a very clear cut singular vision, um, you know, which can sometimes not always be pulled off, you know. But um, when it is, it tends to be something special. So I will uh, definitely have to check that one out. So now for my number one, um, my number one film as of as of now for this episode of the podcast is Julia Ducourneau's T10. This movie is fucking uh, lit. Um, to, <laughs> An to understatement. It, to put it lightly. Um, we did talk about it on a little bit in um the episode on Raw. Um, we did um a little uh compare and contrast towards the end, and uh got to talk about it a little bit. But T10 will get its own episode at some at some point. Um, mm. but her follow up is just uh so powerful. Uh, Julia is so um confident in her directing. Um, this movie. Um, you know, Raw was such a big hit. And um, whatever she was going to do next was pretty anticipated. And um, she kind of did like the opposite of Raw. Um, you know, it's a little bit flashier um, than Raw is. And it's not as focused on uh, the, the story and uh, isn't as straightforward as Raw is. Um, I feel like Julia really just like kind of presented the story in a way that was like, here, I'm going to give you the puzzle pieces and then you put it together however you want it to be. Mm -hmm. Like, it will fit together however you see fit. And um, right. in some of the um, themes that it was tackling as well, um, just a very powerful film um, uh, where you follow this psychopathic killer um, as they are trying to um, lay low 
and they assume the identity of a missing person and then forms this bond with this uh, firefighter. And the the movie, you know, like all I knew about it was I was like, um, I was like, she fucks a car and it's supposed to be like, you know, there's some body horror stuff. I was like, I'm in. I was like, it sounds good to me. And um, the lead performance is just super powerful um, by uh, Agatha Roussel. This was her first performance, too. Um, really was just fearless in this role and uh, portraying this character um, with so many layers without really talking a whole bunch. Like, um, mm. she really doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue throughout the film. It's a very physical performance um, from the opening sequence of, you know, this like dance sequence on this car that like introduces us to the character. And all the way through the film, it's just like very physical um, The with the body horror elements to it as well. And um, the way that it kind of turned into this movie that I really was not expecting about, you know, this idea of like unconditional love and found family. Um, hmm. I was not uh, prepared for that pivot. And like it caught me it like it, it was very af- right after fe- uh, watching the film, I was kind of confused on how I felt about it and like it was a movie that like I just kind of kept moving up my list uh the more I thought about it like I just kind of thought about it so much and I would just be like hmm mm-hmm okay mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and like I just really thought about it a lot and when a movie lingers with you like that like that's what I want the most even if like I have some issues with the story or with the presentation or something like that um at the end of the day I want movies to make me feel like that's what I want. Like, absolutely. And there's not too many movies that really like made me feel something this year. Um, like in, in a very, um, like, uh, I can't think of the word I'm trying to think of, but, um, make me like feel off kilter almost, you know? And, um, and I, there's a dance sequence scene in the movie to um future islands which is one of my favorite bands whenever i heard Ooh. this in the theater i was super excited and then i it was a song that i didn't really listen to all that much it's uh, called lighthouse and then i looked up the lyrics of this song so watch the movie and if you're like kind of confused about some of the body things um that it's trying to say read the lyrics of the song and then i was like oh whoa it all kind of makes sense now and just uh, that attention to detail that she has is phenomenal. So uh, T10, my number one horror film of the year, um, which would leave your number one, would be my number two. But go ahead and introduce it in. Yeah. So uh, my number one is Camille Griffin and her film Silent Night, which is a film that I am so thankful I went into knowing absolutely nothing and you know i want your input should we we should probably avoid spoilers in terms of like what the film is actually about i mean right? we can or, say what's in the trailer which I yeah mean, I, well that's the thing i haven't watched the trailer because i purposefully was told like do not go into it but or don't go into it having watched the trailer but i guess i'll be as vague as i can but i think that it is such a masterful handling of horror and uh dark comedy in a way that I very seldomly feel as actually as successful as it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of like, again, that sort of tightrope of uh, a multiple horror influences or horror, multiple genres that are being blended together in a way that 
you know, I just felt was so masterfully handled in a way that is very seldomly ever actually achieved. I find that specifically with horror comedies outside of, you know, some key outliers, it's a genre that it always either leads into one or the other to a degree for me where I'm like, well, you should have just leaned into that influence more than the other, because clearly this is where your interest was. And Silent Night is never that. Silent Night for me is the film this year that li- quite literally pulled the rug out from under me. And then on the way down was like punching me in the gut the entire time because it was an experience that I was unprepared for purposefully. But then at the same time, the ways in which she so effortlessly bobs and weaves into the, both of those influences, the being the horror and then the dark comedy. And, you know, the dark comedy elements were really in line with things that, I always hear about certain movies achieving and yet this movie does it so effortlessly or makes it look so effortlessly. Like it's about this, basically this uh, Christmas gathering that is supposed to be in this countryside home and everything. And it seems very luxurious and everything. And, you know, they've been doing this for a while, but from the outset, something feels off and you can't put your finger on it for almost 30 minutes of the movie. I think 25, 30 minutes before the reveal of what is actually going on. And that time distinction is so key because you don't spend the entire time just confused and annoyed that you don't, you're not getting answers and you don't know what's going on because the cast that is supporting this film is so strong, right? You've got uh, Matthew Good, you've got Keira Knightley, um, and you've got these other supporting characters, which, you know, I've, I'm going to uh, go into some more of it later in our next episode. But I think that this is one of those films that juggles so many different genre influences in a way that I very rarely see. And it sustains it for its entire runtime. I think it's a little longer than 90 minutes, but it does what I think so few dark, dark comedies uh, can actually achieve. And, you know, I think that I I should have led with the caveat that this is probably one of the bleakest films I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet it constantly pulled me back because it very smartly was leaning into the horrifying melancholic moments of the film and then there would be this little dark comedy bit that bought me right back into it before undercutting me again with another sort of very overt depressing moment and for me I didn't find that it ever had an instance where it kind of lost me in terms of leaning okay this has been too bleak for too long I'm beginning to sort of bounce off of this because it's almost being gleeful in how bleak it is and this film never does that this film Mm -hmm. is I think the perfect balance and probably one of the best examples of a balance of dark comedy and horror in the sense that it just, it has that bob and weave that sustains for the entire length of the film. And, you know, a big part of it is of course the cast, um, which I think uh, I will definitely delve into more in our next episode, but silent night was a movie I went into knowing absolutely nothing about. And I was very, very pleasantly surprised in what it was able to achieve, even if, it's a movie that fucking ruined my night when I watched it, but in the mm-hmm. best way possible, because it does, it has, this is a film that has, you know, more guts than I think most directors uh, have in terms of like willing to take these big swings, but n- having the wherewithal to be like, listen, we can take these swings, but we can't have it just be a movie of big swings one after the other, one after the other, because we'll lose the audience. And I think that uh, this movie definitely was constructed in the way that they understood what they were doing and they understood the need to reel audiences back in with like, go from a fucked up moment to a fucking hilarious moment. And it is just this beautiful merging of 
two genres that I love so much. And I think it does it in pristine fashion and has left quite the mark on me. Yeah, Silent Night. We got a, a nice Christmas uh, horror movie for 2021. And this was my number five movie. And uh, going back to what I was talking about, T10, like this was another one of the few movies that really just like made me feel something. Um, yeah. the way that it balances the comedy and the dark horror, uh, the dark comedy and the horror is so good. Um, it, you know, I, I always kind of talk about like how modern comedy, like just straight up comedy is kind of dead, um, in a way like the, the quality is just so low and all the best comedies are usually the horror comedies. Um, you know, I would say, you know, between this and werewolves within, two of the funniest movies of the year. Like, I mean, they are both really, really funny movies. And this movie, yeah, the way that does it, like the the type of comedy it, you know, uses, whether it be, you know, very straight up, but then also then we have some like awkward situational comedy as well. Um, they, it really switches it up, but then like really goes back and forth with the, I mean, this movie is so bleak. Um, I, I, I was excited for this because Keira Knightley's, also been in another uh dark comedy apocalyptic type movie um called seeking a best friend for the end of the world hmm. so i was like hey Kira knightley she's got her own little very specific subgenre going <laughs> um and yeah we will get into some of the more spoiler things and um some of uh the great performances and uh, yeah, we got got some more Silent Night coming in the next episode for sure. But uh, yeah, Silent Night, uh, really good. Um, it, it, yeah, without getting into the spoilers, I guess that's really about as much as I can say about it as well. I'm looking forward to unpacking that one more with you in the next episode. Me too. Um, I am very excited for that, guys. Yeah, make sure you guys um, are subscribed so that way um, you are ready for the next episode where we give out the awards and we kind of go into some spoiler things. But uh, that is our top six films of uh, 2021. Um, I think it was still a pretty good year in horror overall, um, just um, not as strong as I'd like. I was also, this was another year I was like, I was being pickier with my scores on Letterboxd too. I was like, you know what, I'm going to try and tighten shit up a little bit. And, um, but still came away with some really great films for this year. And I mean, and again, there's still 10 more days left in the year. We still can squeeze in some more. Um, so yeah, this list might be a little bit different next week. Who knows? But um, <laughs> I was uh, happy to talk about all these films. Uh, Jay will be sticking around for the next episode. So make sure you guys are there. But uh, Jay, to sign us off real quick, uh, where can the people find you on social media? So people can find me on Twitter at not funny J. Uh, I do two podcasts. Uh, one that is, uh, you know, I've had uh, Devon on uh, daily horror habit, which you can follow on Twitter at daily horror pod. And uh, this year I started a new podcast uh, in conjunction with bloody disgusting.com with the uh, video game editor over there, Neil Bolt. It is a horror gaming podcast called uh, safe room. And you can follow us at safe room pod. Um, as always, it is a pleasure talking horror with you, and uh, I look forward to unpacking some of our uh, favorite moments and uh, accolades that we would attribute to 2021 horror films in uh, the next episode. Yeah, I am super psyched to get a little bit more specific, and I am uh, excited to have that con uh, 
and I'm excited to continue this conversation with you. But that will go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. New episodes drop every Tuesday, sometimes on Fridays as well. So just make sure you are subscribed on social media at Bloody Blunt's Pod on Twitter and Instagram and following me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Daddy Disco. And until next time, guys, stay lifted. <laughs>